This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. How many of you have grown up in church uh, since, uh, well, maybe you could say all your life you grew up, you were a small child when you first started attending a church of one sort or another? How many would say, yes, that's me, that's a lot, a lot of us. Well, a lot of us could say through those years of growing up, we would have been in a group like that group we dismissed a moment ago or Pastor Ned dismissed a moment ago, all those children. I can recall growing up in a, in a good Bible teaching and preaching proclamation church, a church that explained and expressed and taught the Word of God. From the very, very youngest of age, I've heard the Bible. And I grew up in a generation of time uh, in which we didn't have, uh, this is so hard to say, computers. We didn't have them. I mean, it was a long time ago. And me and Abraham Lincoln would sit there together in class. And I told him to take his hat off. But nevertheless, I, uh, forgive me, my brain gets out of gear sometimes. I, I grew up in church and I grew up not with a computer generated image on a screen, though I love that. I love it. I love PowerPoint presentations. I work on them frequently in my own ministry. But I grew up in a time in which, and I'm really going to date myself, some of you are going to know what I'm talking about, in the days of the flannel graph board. Can I get a witness? Do you know what a flannel graph board is? <laughs> Son, I'm telling you, that's when drama came alive, when uh, the flannel graph board stories. And so frequently when I'd sit in a Sunday school class or in a children's church service, as, as these young people will be uh, enjoying with uh, Pastor Brown here tonight, or a vacation Bible school of one sort or another, they pulled out the flannel graph board. And I loved it. And I, I, uh, I, I enjoyed looking at those. It just helped me to see the story even better. And uh, they would slap those pictures up. Now, if you don't know what a flannel graph board is, it's, uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but uh, they'd take these cutout pictures of people, and they were so colorful, and they'd put them up there on this flannel graph board. I'm not sure... Uh, what they call, why they call flannel graph. I guess that, I don't know. There's some reason for it. The, the, the fabric on the board that was that. I don't know, but they put those pictures up there and they had those images up there on the, on the board. And they kept, they'd put some animals up there. And, and if it was Noah's story, they'd put a boat, a big ark, an image of that <laughs> or, or some other images. And, uh, but I had this one teacher when I was a little boy. I was probably about five. And I loved it. She'd come to Sunday school class and, and she'd bring in all her materials and, and she'd bring in with all of her items, her Bible, and she'd have a file folder and I'd see somebody's hand sticking out of that file folder. And I'd go, hot dog, we got a, we got a flannel graph board story here today. And that's great. But I think she had to buy her own uh, pictures. I don't think the church supplied them for her. And here's the reason why, as I look back on it, is the reason why. It's because one day, she, one Sunday, she'd say, now boys, sit up. We're going we're to look at the story of Moses. And there was that man. And of course, he had a beard. Every one of them had beards. You know that, don't you? I mean, all of them, men, women, children, they all had the beards up there on the flannel graph board. And then she'd tell the story of how he got the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. And, and, uh, and then she'd tell the story. The following week, she'd come in there and she'd say, Now, fellas, sit up. we got a great story today. She said, Today we're going to look at the story of uh, Noah. And she'd put that picture. It was the same picture she put up last week, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, that, that guy was Moses last week, you know. Or people in the Bible sure look a lot alike, you know, and so forth. One week she came in, she goes, we're looking at young David. There's that man with the beard and up there. I said, boy, those kids grow up in a hurry over there in Israel, you know. I'm not sure that was true. I, was, I kept waiting for her to teach on Esther and put that guy's picture up there, you know. I heard those stories, and so often the stories that you hear when you're a child comes from the portion of the scriptures we call, obviously, the Old Testament. Because those narratives are perfect stories to teach the children. But for some reason or another, we, we tend to 
drift away from or get away from them as we get older. And, and I understand the importance of teaching, certainly in the New Testament, these New Testament principles of the, of the, the, the grace-filled life and the, 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 the life that should be ours now that Christ uh, has uh, been crucified and risen from the dead and therefore these principles be, uh, be in our life. And the church is carefully explained in what we certainly call the New Testament. And I frequently, overall, preach from the New Testament. But tonight, we're going to go back and revisit a story that we heard a lot when we were probably young kids. Maybe a story you hadn't heard in a while. And I want you to turn to the book of Judges with me and I want you to go to the chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, that would be, let's see here, uh, the seventh book in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, and then chapter 13. And we're going we're gonna to look at several verses through several chapters. You see, one thing about these narratives and these stories is they usually cover several chapters in a section of the scriptures. So I love, I absolutely love to take a verse or a set of verses in a, in a portion of the scripture and break them apart and exposit them and show us what the wording means. And I'm going to do my best to exposit the section of the scriptures we'll look at together tonight. However, because it's a narrative, it's necessary that we, we, we look at this message from a textual standpoint. You say, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. My point to you tonight is that we're going to look at several things throughout this life so that we can see the story. Now, I say this again. When I was a boy, when this story showed up on the teacher's list of stories to tell, and they would explain it to us, I have no idea what it meant to the girls when they heard this story. Oh, but when you were a guy, you loved this story. This was a guy story. This was a, this was a story that us guys enjoyed. If you hadn't got it figured out, I'm talking about Samson. Ah, oh, we love the story of Samson. I mean, I mean, I, I don't really remember his picture up on the flannel graph board, though I'm sure he wound up up there somewhere. I don't recall because I don't remember if the picture was the picture that I had in my mind. So you see, if you know the story of Samson, and we're going to look at several sections of it. If you know the story, you know that he had unusual, now here's the very important statement, God-given physical strength. God gave him strength to help deliver the children of Israel from the nation that was controlling them. You see, the book of Judges, the term Judges is not the picture of, of what we call judges today that sit in some courtroom with their robe on and they, they listen to the litigation of one thing after another and then they pass rulings. No, this term Judges means deliverer. It, is the, it was the fact that the Lord God raised up deliverers to help deliver Israel from those nations that had enslaved Israel. And so you have men like Gideon and, and Barak and you had the woman Deborah and oh, Ehud and several others that are in the book of Judges that would help the children of Israel. It was a seesaw up and down ride during these years. The Bible says in the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And as a result of that, Israel would become captured again by another nation. They, the people of God got away from God. They, they stopped worshiping him with their whole heart. And so they would get captured and be taken away. And for like 20 years, 40 years, they would be the slave, the servants of another country. And then God would raise up a deliverer because God's people would cry out and say, Oh God, we're sorry. Please forgive us. Bring deliverance. And so one of these deliverers would come. In an unusual way, they would bring back again the liberty to God's people. Well, in, Judge, in Judges 13, would you just notice something here in verse 1? It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. But it goes on to say there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive 
and bear a son. Go all the way down to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 24. It says, and the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. You know what the name Samson means? The name Samson means sunshine. Sunshine boy. Sonny boy. No doubt they called him Sonny. And he had a gregarious, outgoing, probably you would call it a pleasing, warm personality. He'd be the kind of man that when he walked into a room, you just knew he was there. He had a presence to him. Now you say, yeah, he was, he was muscular and he was, uh, he was a guy who, uh, he was just kind of was a daunting, uh, strong, muscle upon muscle, on steroid, uh, ready for the World Wrestling Federation looking kind of a man. No, he wasn't. He looked like any other man. You say, now how do you know that? Because when later on he comes to this, his last female in his life, Delilah, she goes to great lengths to find out what is the secret of your strength? We can't figure it out. The things that you can do. You have an ability that people your size and structure, uh, you, how come you can do what you can do? This is why we love this story when we were boys. Can I just relate uh, some of them that you already know? Uh, the, these are great stories. Uh, Delight, uh, uh, excuse me, Samson at one time, in an effort to get back at the Philistines, uh, captured <laughs> three hundred foxes. Okay, how do you do that? I mean, I don't know how he, you say, well, he probably had traps. Okay, I'll grant you that. He had a bunch of traps. So he traps a bunch of foxes. What do you do with them while waiting to catch, you know, you got 300. You got them in some kind of a pen of some sort. I'm sure that was a pleasant sight. And so you got all these foxes uh, held together somewhere. Then he took, (laughs) he took the tail of one fox And he took the tail of another fox. Can you see a bunch of little boys going, oh, oh, uh, I'm going to try this when I get home, you know. And, 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 And Samson took the two tails and tied them together in a knot. Now, how many of you in this room think that those foxes were real cooperative while Samson was doing that? I mean to tell you, they were probably biting at him and snapping at him and making all kinds of racket and noise. I have no idea what he did. Did he put a knee on the neck of one and a knee on the neck of the other as he tied them together? 150 times he did that, but that's not all. Then he took a torch. He took a, a torch and, he, and that, in that knot of two foxes that were now trying to get away from the other one they were tied to, he put a torch in, in that knot, up in between that knot of those foxes and then lit that fox, uh, lit that torch between those two foxes. So you got two foxes that are going out of their mind and you got fire on their backside, you know? And I mean, they are going literally crazy. So he's got 150 torch bearers. Someone said, by the way, it's the first uh, reference to a tail light. In, I'm, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, that's a dad joke if I ever heard one. And it's a... Bad joke, that's for sure. Anyway, he set, he set them loose. He set those 150 torch-bearing, wild, out-of-control foxes into the fields, the barley fields and the corn stalks or whatever of the Philistines' territory. And so the Philistines looked out there. They couldn't see the foxes. They were down low to the ground. These foxes going in every direction, trying to break free from the other one. And those torches were lighting up the, uh, the, uh, the fields. And, and the Philistines stood there and watched their fields burn down. And, and someone said, you know who's behind this. It's that old sunshine boy. It's that Samson guy. That's what he's done. You say, where did he get such an idea? I don't have a clue. But I just really think it's cool. I mean, I really do. I love that story. There's another time when Samson, in a time as he often did, in a season of extreme weakness, once again, he went over to a harlot's house in the city of in in the country of in the city area of Gaza, he went into a prostitute's house, and the doors were shut. When I say the doors, the gates of the city were shut. It was nighttime. You see, these cities had giant walls around them to protect them, but the gates would be open during the day, the daylight hours, so people could come and go, and commerce and things could come through into that gate. But but at night they would close those gates. And, and, and set them down tightly and to protect everybody in the city. Historians tell us 
those gates would weigh anywhere between one to two ton. Gigantic, durable gates, and they had posts on them that when they scraped across, men would take the time to close that gate. Those two posts connected with the gates would fall down into holes, and somehow or another they would secure the gate and lock it down. And that's when everybody was in the city. Well, Samson's already in the city. He's in the house of some prostitute. And there were men there and they said, we've got him. We've got him trapped. This is wonderful. And they gathered together. The Bible doesn't tell us how many men, but just, you know, figure 40, 50. I don't know. And they gather in that city. And, and, and it's nighttime, it's dark, and they're sitting around with, with swords and, and with uh, uh, various links and maybe some uh, 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 spears of some sort or another, and they're ready, and they say, when he finally comes out, and when he starts trying to make his way out, we're going to get him, he'll at least expect it in the darkness, and we got him. This is it. This is wonderful. The Bible says at midnight, Samson came out of the prostitute, the harlot's house, he came out. I can almost hear that group of men whispering, saying, here he comes. Here he comes. Get ready. Get ready. Wake up, Leroy. Here he comes. And they're all standing around. They're ready to come. And they're going to, the Bible just simply says this. Samson came down, came over there to the gate that was shut, tight, tight as can be. Went over there and grabbed one post, grabbed the other post, and just pulled that, let's say one ton gate, put it up on his back and then just walk through now the opening in that gate where that gate used to be, ripped from its moorings. He just walks right through its opening and carries it uphill a distance of about six miles and then just drop the gates there so that the Philistines could find it later on. You know, some of you would think, I have a hard enough time carrying my own weight for six miles. What am I, I, how in the world did he carry those gigantic gates? That's the power of God that was on him. You say, what about those men? It's interesting. Nothing was said there in the scriptures as to what they did. But come on, use your imagination. You're sitting there saying, ah, oh, here he comes, let's go. And all of a sudden, this guy comes over. He rips the gates, your gates, and he, and he takes off with them. You'd be sitting there going, I'm not messing with that guy. You know, I'm not going to get near him. Man, he'll crush me. Samson. What a story. Samson was born in trying times. I told you, I read to that to you in the beginning of chapter 13. He was born at a time when the nation needed leadership and help, spiritual guidance. Samson was born in a godly home. God sent a message to this godly couple. I'm, God's going to give you a child that's going to be God's servant, God's man. We want you to train him for the glory of God. We want you to separate him, surrender him, dedicate him over to God through the Nazarite vow. That's a vow that we're not familiar with in our day and age. But a Nazarite would be someone who would be separated and surrendered over to God. And through, through the length of time that he was a Nazarite, he was to not eat any grape or take any of the squeezings of the grapes, drink any fruit of the vine, take no intoxicating uh, beverage into his system whatsoever. Secondly, he was to not touch a dead carcass of a dead human body or an animal. He was to not touch anything that was dead, plus he was to not cut his hair. Most people who were Nazarites would be Nazarites for a season of time, a month, maybe a year. Samson, he was a Nazarite for life. And on top of that, would you go back to chapter 13 and notice verse 24, and the woman bare a son, called his name Samson, look at this, and the child grew, look at this, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him <coughs> at times in the camp of Dan, that's in the northern section of Israel, between Zorah and Eshtaol. Not only was he dedicated to the Lord, not only was he trained in the things of the Lord by good godly parents, God was using him. You saw it. You see, when I bring up Samson tonight, most of us in this room think of only the worst. 
We think of the terrible condition of what happened. And there's no question, that's, that has to be much of the emphasis, even in tonight's message. And the utter failure of his life. But he didn't always have that going on in his life. He had a great beginning. God was using him. God's hand was upon him. And God was patient with him. God was long-suffering with him. And I'll tell you one more thing about him. You won't take time to go there, but in Hebrews 11, New Testament, and verse 32, you know what you'll find? You'll find Samson's name written all the way in Hebrews 11. Are you familiar with that chapter? It's called the Hall of Faith. It lists a bunch of people from the Old Testament who, who by faith trusted that God was going to send a Savior someday. Somewhere along the way, Samson said, well, God's going to send a Savior. And I'm putting my faith, my faith, my confidence, my trust in the fact that God will save my eternal soul. I don't know when he's going to come, but whenever he comes, he's going to be my Savior. I'm going to believe in him before he comes. You see, you and I are on the other side of that fact historically. Jesus came. He was the sent one. He was the Savior. He is the Savior. And so we look back upon it and we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Samson was looking forward saying, I put my faith in the one that God is going to send. You see, Samson was a believer in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith? I'm talking about you, not the one sitting next to you, not the one behind you or anybody else in this building, or anyone that's listening online. I'm talking to you, and I'm asking you a question that needs to be asked. It needs to be asked. Have you placed your faith? You say, Morris, what does that mean? You are saying, Him alone. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. He did for me what I could not do for myself. I can't save myself. Jesus did it for me. And He crushed death. When he rose again from the dead. Has that happened for you? Or you say, Morris, I'm going to tell you something. I got baptized when I was 12 years of age. Well, I'm glad you've done that, I guess. But what was behind that baptism? You say, well, well, well my, family, uh, my family took me to church when I was a young child. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? That's great. But I'm asking you, have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ? You say, well, I've heard about Jesus. In fact, Morris, I know my way all over the Bible. I, if you, you give me any passage, I can get you there in a moment. I can, I can find it. I know my way through the Bible. And that's great. That is wonderful. But have you put your faith, your confidence, and your trust in Jesus Christ? It's not what you do to earn your way to God. You don't do so. A little boy was talked to by the Lord, by, by the Lord about his need of Jesus Christ. And after the service, his family was so excited that he was asking the questions about, I, I need Jesus to be my Savior. And they took him to the pastor, and the pastor took him privately to a room. And when he came out, uh, he stood there before his parents and some friends, and they said, Son, what just happened? He said, I just got saved. Oh, they said, that's wonderful, son. That is so good. Tell us about it. And he said this. He said, well, I did my part, and Jesus did his part, and now I know I'm going to heaven. And they said, now, now wait a minute, son. You, you don't have a part. Now, what do you mean? He goes, oh, yeah. I did my part, and Jesus did his part, and now I'm going to heaven. They said, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, I did my part. I did the sinning, and Jesus did the saving. He said, now I'm going, and they said, yeah, you got it. That's it. You can't save yourself, son. Friend, listening online or sitting in this building tonight, have you recognized that? Somewhere along the way, Samson did. I wish I could say, I wish I could say to you tonight, Samson went on to become a dynamic, faithful leader and a deliverer of God's people for a long time. But I can't. You see, he started off well, but he began to know failure. I hate to say it like this. Somebody had said he went from being a hero to a zero. That's strong language. May I say to anybody in this room tonight, the final chapter is not written on your life. I want to keep this, in, I want to keep this message in balance tonight. 
Our God is a God of great mercy. He is a God of great long-suffering and patience. A God of the second chance and third and fourth and umpteenth chance. He'll, he'll forgive you if you seek His face. Child of God. And you say, God, I failed you again. I'm sorry. Please use me. And He will. There may be consequences for decisions that you've made and choices that you've made. And I can show you even in Samson's end of his life where he called out to God and he said, Lord, just use me one more time. And God broke him. God, he humbled himself before the Lord. But prior to that time, he failed. You see, when you turn to chapter 16, if you'll go there with me, you'll see some of the end of his life. It says in verse, uh, let's, let's look at it in verse uh, 19. And she, that's Delilah, made him sleep upon her knees and she called for a man and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head and she began to afflict him. I don't know all that she maybe poked his muscles that used to flex or something. I don't know. But she began to afflict him as he laid there asleep and his strength went from him. It wasn't there. And she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep. And he said, I will go out as at other times before. Oh, no, you won't. And I'll shake myself. And he wist not, he knew not, this is the saddest phrase in the Bible, that the Lord was departed from him. No, 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 he did not lose his salvation, but he lost the power of God. He lost his testimony for God. He lost his ministry. He lost his effectiveness in service to the Lord. There's a reason why. It goes on to say in verse 21, but the Philistines took him and they put out his eyes. Did you know that was an old terrorist attack uh, 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 approach? Terrorists would take out a person's eyes. Many times a person would bleed to death as they would remove their eyes. It's a horrible thing to think about. Sunshine boy. His eyes poked out. Now he can't see in severe pain. And, they, and it says here, <coughs> they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with fetters, that's giant chains of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. What is that? He got treated like an animal. They strapped him to the, to the uh, mill. Uh, they strapped him to a, 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 an old a, a rowing uh, oar of, at the grinding of two giant stones. And, and like a donkey or like an ox, he walked around in a circle, probably no doubt with a slave driver behind him, whipping him, saying, keep moving, keep moving, just like he was a donkey, just like he was an ox. And he would walk in circles for hours. And the Philistines would stand above him and laugh at him. <laughs> Where's your God now, Samson? How about it, Sammy? Yeah, you're not so hot, are you? Yeah, you, you beat us up for years. You terrorized us, now we got you. You can't do anything, can you, Samson? He had to hear all the, all the taunting. He lost his testimony. He lost his ministry. He lost the power of God. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy reading it. What caused this to happen? Well, you say, Morris, you know the Bible. You know the story of Samson. You know what happened. The guy was lusting after women right and left. There's at least three women we read of that he went after. Yeah, there's no question that was a major problem. But can I say something to you tonight? It started before then. There were things that were going on in Samson's life that sometimes we just kind of overlook. Oh, you see, we, we see the ugly, glaring sin. And tonight, I could preach a, a, a message on being pure. No question about it. We need it in this generation. No doubt about it. And I could preach against adultery. We need those messages. And I could warn people about what you're looking at online, on websites, and so forth. We need those messages. But there were some steps that were taken prior to Samson's utter failure and loss of effective ministry and life. Well, what were they? Why would we look at them? Can I just remind you of what the Apostle Paul reminded us of? You say, what? Yeah, in the New Testament, here's what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 11 and 12, he said this. He said, now all these things happened unto them. He was talking about the people in Israel in the Old Testament. Listen to it. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. They are written for our admonition. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed 
lest he fall. You see, the story of Samson is a story of God's great long-suffering and God's patience for long seasons of time, but it's also a story of warning. Maybe you're on a pathway tonight that you see and you're going to see tonight in the life of Samson. You see, God's people need to wake up and recognize these things. What did you see in Samson's life, Morris? Number one, he had an abundance of hostility. Would you go back to chapter 14? Now, stay with me. We're going to look at several places. It says in chapter 14, and, 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 and at the beginning, it says, And Samson went down to Timnath, and he saw a woman. Here's, here we go. In Timnath, of the daughters of the Philistines, and I could preach a sermon about don't be unequally yoked. Young people, don't marry an unsaved person. Don't even date an unsaved person. And here's Samson. Here's Samson hanging out with the Philistines, and he sees a woman that he likes. Verse 2, and he came up and told his father and his mother, and he said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife, you see, Moms and dads had to arrange the weddings. It had to be that way. You had to go over, knock on the door and say, our son is of a marrying age and your daughter is as well and we'd like to arrange for a wedding. What would be her dowry price? What can we settle on? And so he said, mom, dad, I found the one I want to marry. I'm not going to let you choose her for me. I got her down in Philistine country. Uh, I need you to go get her. And look at verse three. Then his father and his mother said unto him, is there never a woman? Among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you go to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Look at Samson's answer. And Samson said unto his father, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. He just talked right back to his parents. He says, I'm not here to discuss this with you. I don't want your opinion on this matter. Get her for me. She pleases me. Now get with it. That's the first stage that we see in Samson's poor testimony, his bad spirit at home. Look at verse 19 of the same chapter. And the Spirit of the Lord, you see God kept using him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and he slew 30 men of them. Now that's Philistines. And he took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle quickly. What does that mean? When Samson was having a wedding feast, there were 30 guys that were going to be at the, at the, at the wedding feast. Some were the brothers of his bride-to-be, of his bride-to-be, and uh, friends of, uh, the, of the bride. And, they, and he called them up and he, he said, you see, Samson had killed a lion. And, uh, and later on, he went up to that lion that he had killed with his own bare hands. What an incredible strength that he had. And he reached down, he saw some honey in that, in that carcass of a lion. What's he doing touching a dead carcass? He, he was not caring for God's guidance. He reached down and he took some of the honey out of that carcass and he ate of it. And he went and found his mom and dad. They didn't know where he got it. He took it to them and he gave some of the, of the honey to them. And now at the wedding feast, he says to these guys, he says, these 30 guys, he said, now, out of, out of the eater came food, meat, he said. Honey was considered meat or food, substance. Out of the eater came food. And out of the strong came sweetness. What is my riddle? Samson loved, he had that sunshine personality. He loved to have a a play on words. What's, the, what's my riddle? They could, he's, I give you a week. They couldn't come up with the answer. And so all those guys, some of them were brothers, went to the bride-to-be and they said, now you find out what's going on. I mean, he's not a Philistine. You go find out. What is the meaning of that riddle? She went to Samson and started working on him. Here's a guy who could kill a lion, but he couldn't stand in front of a weeping girl. And she said, come on, Samson, tell me. What's the story? I need to know. What's the meaning behind the riddle? Finally, he tells her and she goes and tells all those guys. And so they they come to Samson. They go, well, it's a lion that is the, is the, uh, uh, the eater and, and the food was the honey that you got out of it. And he says, I know where you got the answer. You got it from my bride-to-be. You got it from my wife. And so now he goes down. It says here, we just read, he kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes and brings them back and gives it to all of these guys that figured out his riddle. But now would you look at the end of verse 19? 
It says, and his anger was kindled and he went up to his father's house. He's at his wedding. He went home. It's like the old thing of a boy taking his ball and going, I don't want to be with you anymore. I'm going to go home. He's full of self-pity. He's full of anger. I don't want to be around you people anymore. Go to chapter uh, 15. Notice, if you would, please, verse 7. And they, uh, they had approached Samson about what he was doing. And verse 7 says, And Samson said unto them, Though you have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. And after that I will cease. He goes, you, you started this and you started the, the fight and I'm going to retaliate. You did it. You started it. And what you did to me, I'll do to you. Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why are you come up against us? And they answered, to bind Samson are we come up to do to him as he hath done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock Edom. And they said to Samson, knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that you've done unto us? And he said unto them, look at this, as they did unto me, so have I done unto them. Friends, over and over and over again, if I can just cut to the chase here, Samson had an anger problem. He had a temper problem. Oh, you said, but Morris, remember, he, he had moral failure. Yes, I know, I know. But can you not see the steps that were leading to it? He was a guy that was all about him. Things irritated him. When things got shook up, it came out. I mean, sometimes he took things into his own hands and fought with his bare hands. And his words to these people was, you started it. I'm going to finish it. Sound like a, a two kids in the back seat of your car, you know, playing hit last, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know what I mean? Your kids weren't angels. You know what I'm talking about. And you get onto a child for messing around and what do you say? What does he say? He started it. It's not my fault. No one's going to walk over me. Samson's temper was, was demonstrated over and over and over and over again. Many times other people's decisions around us causes us difficulty and, heart and trouble and heartache and disruption in our life and boom, we blow up. How often do you lose your temper? You say, Morris, could you just go on back and describe uh, what he did? I, no, quit asking us questions. Don't get mad at me while I'm talking to you about the sin of getting angry. This is one size fits all. Are you a person who says, I'll tell you what, pal, ain't nobody going to run all over me at work, home, husbands and wives tolerate each other and they explode on each other. They get mad at the kids. Siblings don't get along with each other and get mad at their parents. And sometimes it's just a full-scale explosion like a volcano. A volcano goes off and the whole city suffers when that volcano explodes. Some people don't blow up. They just clam up. It's brooding. It's stewing. It's steaming on the inside. And, and it's like it's going to blow at any moment. I wonder how many times a, a kid walks into the kitchen and mom's over there slamming drawers and, and cabinets and so forth and she's mumbling under her breath. And the kid says, okay, I think I'll, I think I'll give mom a little time. I'm afraid I've seen this before. I'll be back in three days. I'll see what, how things are. When things don't go your way, what comes out of you? You say, Morris, I, I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, I know, but how often do you lose your temper? How often are you somebody who says, I, I, I don't like the decisions that the boss is making? For sure. People make decisions we don't understand. I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing at church. And I, I, it, just, it just disturbs me. You know, there's a process of getting answers to things and hat in hand and asking some questions in a tender uh, desiring way to uh, get some answers without exploding. There's a way to talk to your husband. There's a way to talk to your wife. There's a way to raise your kids without getting angry. 
And yet the truth is, old Samson shows to us that his, one of his major steps of downfall, one of his early steps was he had a hateful spirit. It even started at home before he was married. Hatefulness, bitterness, being retaliatory, resentful. We've even made heroes on football fields and basketball courts of those who are called trash talkers. Man, I like that ball. He won't put up with it. I mean, he's going, I'm down. He, he can talk trash as well as anybody. God's people don't trash talk. You say, well, what should we do? Well, let me let Pastor James remind you. James 3 said this, the tongue no man can tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, or out of it, bless we God. We sing his songs, even the Father. And therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth, he said, proceeds blessing and cursing. And then it's as if James just, he just hits a, hits a point where he says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. We sing our songs and we praise our God when we're around things of the house of God and the people of God when everything is smooth. But when our things are not the way we want it, he says we curse men. We become vengeful. Full of self-pity. Samson says, I'm going to go home. I'm just not going to talk to you. Boy, that'll teach you something. I'm not going to have anything to do with that church anymore. I'm not going to have anything to do with that person that... In, uh, at, at home, at work, at school, wherever. You make me so mad. You know the preacher of yesteryear, the name Samson, said this. He said, losing your temper is like temporary insanity. He says, because when you finally calm down after you've blown up, you say, did I say that? I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. Where'd that come from? He says, it's like we momentarily became insane. 1999, two teenagers walked into Columbine High School with sawed-off shotguns and pipe bombs and killed 12 of their own peers at Littleton, in Littleton, Colorado, and one teacher, and then took the guns, <laughs> turned it on themselves, and took their own life. And after 10 years of research, they finally wrote a book on what motivated these two boys to go on a killing spree. And they came down with one answer. They were angry. Didn't feel like they were getting enough attention. And since that day, we've heard many more college campuses that have been held hostages, held hostage, and people shooting people. Dylan Roof walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina on a Wednesday night. People greeted him. The service had already begun. People smiled at him and welcomed him. And then just with a few moments passing, he stood up and spit out a bunch of racial epitaphs and began to shoot his gun and killed nine people in that service full of anger and rage. In Texas, in Sutherland Springs, at the First Baptist Church, a man walked in with a gun, began to shoot before somebody took him out. Angry, fired employees have gone back to where they used to work and Shoot, shot their boss and other people that were in the office at that time. Full of rage, full of anger. And we get angry too. We may not commit homicide, but we commit verbicide. And we attack somebody because we don't like things in their life. We get upset. We have a sudden burst of anger. We get stubborn anger. What's that? Well, it's like we dig in our heels and we say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, maybe I am a little bit wrong, but, but you're more wrong and I'm not going to lose my ground. And we just dig in our heels. We have this sinful anger in our life. How often do you lose your temper? You say, well, Morris, have you, you think you're some kind of an expert? Why do you think this, this truth is not only a message often that I preach on, it's uncomfortable because honestly, it's a battlefield we all face, including the guy you're listening to tonight. I, I spend a lot of my time on the road driving. And you can get a little upset out there. Not too long ago, a few months back, I was at an intersection and there was a guy trying to turn 
where I had come up, but he couldn't, he, I, I couldn't see a, around him to see if traffic had cleared for me to go out. It made him so mad that he started honking his horn. And I thought, who's he, who's he, who's he honking at? And I looked over at his truck and he was waving at me going, get out, just go, go. Son, I'm telling you, it just came all over me. I wanted to put that thing in drive and get out of my car and go, are you serious? You know, really? That's what I wanted to do. I've gotten angry. You ever ridden on a plane? Oh, your plane ever been late? Your baggage didn't make it? You're sitting in that plane next to somebody this, this tight, this close. It's amazing. They want you to have six feet apart from everybody in the, in the terminal. But when you get on the plane, get in there. You, know? <laughs> you turn and look at somebody and you're just kind of like this in front of them. How are you? It's easy to get mad. And then the pilot hits some turbulence and he wants to explain something to you and he comes over the speaker. What's he saying? I can't understand him. What's wrong with this airline? Think I'll get off. Oh, I can't. Not yet. It's easy to get mad. It's easy to find fault. It's easy to complain. Oh, Sunshine Boy was a guy who had a lot of great things about him, but he was a bit sensitive. He was difficult to talk to. How about you? Is it easy for you to be critical of other people? Do you feel better about yourself by criticizing somebody else? You harbor resentment? Listen to what Pastor James again said in James 4 and verse 11. He said this, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He's talking to God's people. He says, don't, don't speak evil about your brother. Anger. Is there someone tonight that you are so angry with that the very mention, if I mention their name, and of course I can't, but if somebody else mentioned their name, it begins to build inside of you. Is there somebody, honestly, you need to forgive tonight? Oh, but you say, preacher man, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't know what they did to you. I don't have to know. You say, well, they've never asked for forgiveness. Aren't you glad Jesus forgave you on the cross before you asked for forgiveness? I can cite the example of Joseph in the Old Testament who forgave his brothers long before they ever asked for forgiveness. You say, but you, you don't know what they did to me. Now, look, I am not saying that if there has been abuse and if there have been some things that have been a mistreatment of some sort or another that you just kind of glibly look over it. No, I'm not saying that. But when you forgive somebody, hear me, you're backing off and you're saying, Lord, I leave them with you. You take care of them. I don't want to walk around carrying the baggage of unforgiveness in my life for the rest of my life. If I'd be a better person had it not been for that coach or for that teacher, for that parent, for that uncle, for that fill in the blank. Is there somebody you need to forgive tonight? Let me tell you something. Anger and bitter spirits have busted up more sweet churches than immoral and false doctrine has. Anger... And bitterness and unforgiving spirit has torn up more marriages than immorality has. Samson's first reason why he wound up like an animal in that mill was that he had an abundance of hostility. And this ties completely with it. Secondly, he had the absence of humility. You see, God kept trying to get his attention, but it was all about Samson. Samson walked into a vineyard. He was not to have anything to do with the fruit of the vine. Over in chapter 14, he walked into that vineyard and God sent a lion to attack him. I'm as convinced as I am standing here tonight that God was trying to tell Samson, you don't belong in this vineyard. You're a Nazarite. Have nothing to do with this. Get out of here. Samson didn't hear the warning. Why? Because he was full of himself. I found a woman I want to marry, mom and dad. And his parents said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
We're here as your parents to help warn you. I, I don't care what you want. I found the one I want. He wasn't listening to God. He was full of himself. But now look at chapter 15, would you please? There was a time in which Samson got trapped with a bunch of Philistines grabbing him. Look at verse 14. It says, and when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire. And his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, a donkey. And he put forth his hand and took it and he slew, look at this, a thousand men therewith. What a sight. As he began to sling that old dry jawbone of a donkey around and began to kill a thousand men. But wait a minute. Look at Samson's response in verse 16. And Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps. He's talking about heaps and piles of bodies. With the jaw of an ass have I slain a thousand men. No reference to God's power. No reference to God's blessing. It was all about him. He had an, an abundance of hostility and the absence of humility. Friends, listen carefully. The thing that hinders your spiritual advancement. Are you listening? Are you with me? Are you watching online? The thing that will hinder your spiritual advancement. The thing that will hurt a church. The thing that will hurt your family. The thing that will hurt you personally is pride. Pride is a killer. It hinders spiritual progress. Peter knew about this. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, he said this, be clothed with humility for God resists. He puts up a fight. You're at war with God. God resists the proud and he gives grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. When you are full of pride, let me tell you, it isolates you from the God of grace and the grace of God. We live in a narcissistic, all centered about me world. We do what we can to satisfy only me. We even have social media where I can put pictures and statements about me and say, please, see me, notice me. You say, what's wrong with social media? Nothing if it's used correctly. I'm not preaching against that. But you know as well as you're sitting here tonight that there are some that use it as a tool just to say, notice me, see me. Hear me. George Whitfield was a preacher of yesteryear, of one of the greatest itinerant preachers that America's ever known. He was a revivalist preacher, and he would go to the coal mines in the early morning hours and sometimes in the late uh, afternoon hours when those miners would come out of the mines and they'd bring in a whole new set of miners to go in. Those miners would come out, they would be covered these were hard men, hardworking, tired men, men who were a brutal, a bad language, vile men. And they'd come out and they have all that black soot of the coal all, all on their faces. And they said that George Whitfield would stand there and he would preach that they're all sinners. We're all sinful before a holy God. And you better get right with God. And he would call sin out and he said, they said the only way you knew that you that any the only way Whitfield knew that people were listening was that he began to see little rivers flowing on those dark covered faces. Tears, these hardened men began to humble themselves and recognize I want to stand before a holy God. Martin Luther made this statement. He said, It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That is why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. We show pride in our excessively talking about ourselves. We show pride in our expecting other people to serve us. We show pride in our acting like we're the authority on any given subject. We show pride in our expecting everyone to agree with us and our opinions. We show pride in our ignoring others who are not quite as intelligent as we are. And they're not as spiritually advanced as I might be. Or maybe they're just poor. 
We show pride in our envying the gifts and the abilities of other people. We show pride by tearing other people down so I can feel good about myself. We show pride in our being unwilling to admit our wrong in any situation. We show pride by our unwillingness to confess sin to God. We show pride in our unwillingness to be under conviction from the Lord. We show pride in our absence of heartfelt worship of Him. Miriam and Aaron in the Old Testament, <coughs> the brother and sister of Moses, showed their pride by saying, you're not the one, only one around here, Moses, that can lead these people. We're just as good as you are. And God had to inflict suffering in their life. David showed pride when he numbered his troops and the people all over. And he said, I, I, I want to see how many people are serving me. And even the disciples would get on that boat or walk with, with Jesus and they would argue among themselves saying, just exactly who is the greatest among us? We're prone to do it. Samson, Samson. You, you're being flippant about sin. You act like you can get by with anything. You, you got a laissez-faire approach when God's trying to get your attention, walking through a vineyard. Having a marriage feast, which meant, as an old Hebrew word, which meant heavy drinking. He, he's got intoxicating beverages there. What's he doing with that? Touching a dead carcass of the lion that he killed, saying it's not a big deal. And then when Delilah had him under her pressure and thumb of influence, he said, just cut off all my hair and I'll be like any other man. And then when it happened, he said, oh, I'm okay. I'll go out and I'll just do what I've done in the past. I'll be all right. And God said, no, you won't, Samson, not anymore. I'm grateful to say to you that later on, Samson clearly must have repented before God. He finally humbled himself because the Bible makes a poetic statement when it says the hair of his head began to grow again. He began to get the power of God. The power was not in his hair. It was represented by his surrendered life. And when he when he was taken into the temple of Dagon with the Philistines, he had a boy to take him over to the two pillars that held up that gigantic temple. And Samson humbly said, Oh God, would you just use me one more time? And he pulled down that temple as he pulled those pillars down. 3,000 or more people died with Samson in that time. But Samson died an early death because he had the abundance of hostility and the absence of humility. Is it hard for you to say, oh God, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be. God, forgive me. Is it hard for you to serve other people? That's evidently what Samson was having a hard time with. Is it hard for you to obey God's truth? That's evidently what Samson was battling with. I'm sometimes asked, Morris, have you ever seen a, a work of God that is a real work of revival, a sense that God is moving in a large manner? I wish I could say, oh, all the time. Oh, I see God work in great ways, and I'm grateful for that. I never take it for granted. But the meaning of that question was, have you ever seen a real work of revival? And I speak of a time that is almost too sacred to speak of, and I mean that. I don't, often, I don't often tell this, but I was preaching in Singapore years ago. And I was asked to preach in a church, and in between two church meetings, I had a week of a youth camp, teen camp. And these teenagers, about 150 of them from one church, told their youth workers and youth leaders, now when we have our camp this year, we want to play these games. And the leader said, yeah, those sound like good games. And we like to have these meals. Can we have these food, these meals? And they said, sure, we can do that. And then the teenager said, and one more thing, don't bring anybody to preach. We don't want any preaching. We've heard it all before. And they said, no, we will have preaching. Amen. They brought me in, but they didn't tell me <laughs> that those teenagers didn't want preaching. They were so gracious. 
They really were. They were kind. That, that uh, Singaporean Asian spirit. I was doing this a lot during the week. They understood English, so we communicated. It was funny at times. Uh, a bunch of them would stand off to the side uh, from me, and they would start speaking their Mandarin. And they'd go, and, and they'd start laughing. And I said, I know they're talking about me. I know they must be somehow. And I don't know what they're saying. I preached once, twice, three times. And after the third, maybe the fourth service, I said, young people, I think we need to respond to the Lord. If God has been talking to you, it's time for you to respond to him. I had no idea that every time I preached, they were mentally and emotionally, more importantly, spiritually, putting up a wall between me and them. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't demonstrate it. They just sat there. So after that third or fourth service, I said, let's take time with the Lord. I said, if you'd like to spend some time with the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask our pianist to come to the electric keyboard and just play a song and you take some time with your God here. Find a place to kneel. And I began to see a movement that was a trickling effect at first. As teenagers from all portions of the room began to come forward, but listen, they were visibly broken. Weeping. And then I saw something that I, I've never seen before. There were young people sitting, sitting in their chairs and they just fell on the floor. I don't mean to harm themselves. They just fell. They collapsed to the floor, buried their face in their hands and began to weep and plead for forgiveness. I physically took a step back on the platform and in my mind, in my heart, I said, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but don't let me mess it up. Tell me if I should say something, if I should be quiet. God, don't let me mess up what you're doing. You're doing something here. I didn't, I've never seen this before. It was, it was total in completeness, a movement of those young people, a brokenness by young people who had said, we don't want anything from the word of God. And the Lord saved some and the Lord recovered many teenagers. Oh, the singing after that service. What we heard, the ministry of their voices singing together and then the openness and the smiles and the longing for more preaching. We had quite a week. When it was over with, we went back to their home church and I preached Sunday morning in their church service Sunday morning. I was going to preach somewhere else Sunday night. So after that Sunday morning service, they took me and Lynn away and they were ushering us out to go, and as I was walking out, the youth pastor, the youth leader, had brought me and had me there at the camp. Came running up to me. He said, "Brother Glaser, Brother Glaser." I said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "What do I do now?" I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "What do I do with the kids now?" I said, "Well, now you know what to do." I said, "You're going to need to start investing time and in making teaching them discipleship matters and take them through." Bible studies and helping them take those next steps. Oh, no, no, he said. I know that. He said, I, I will do that. But he said, I mean right now. Now. I said, I'm not following you. He said, the teenagers. They don't want to go home. They want more preaching. I said, well, brother, I can't stay. I've got to go. He goes, I know. So what do I do? I said, get back in there and preach. If parents let them stay, you go in there and preach. And they did. I didn't know what they did, but they set up microphones, they later told me. 
and the whole group sang and then they asked any teenager who would like to give a testimony to come up to a microphone and give a testimony of what God had done in their life and they recorded the whole thing. The next morning, Lynn and I were at the airport early, like four o'clock in the morning and in through the door of the airport walked a bunch of teenagers. They had a gift to give me. A CD of their testimonies and of them singing. And they said, please come back. I got an email later on from, when I say later on, years later, from one of those young men, I got others, but one of those young men, who was by that time, I guess, mid to upper 20s, and he wrote me and he said, I don't know if you remember us. (laughs) I just looked at that email and I said, Oh, son, I'd never forget you guys. He said, I just wanted to tell you something. That was a life-changing week for so many of us. And he said, I wanted you to know that the vast majority of us are still living for God, walking with Him, and many of us are now helping in the youth ministry as youth workers here, helping other teenagers. I saw an abundance of humility at that camp. It took Samson a while to get there. It took a major loss before he ever humbled himself. Am I asking for another demonstration like that? Of course not. Those works of God are in his sovereign oversight, but I'm saying this to us tonight. There needs to be an awareness that Samson's downfall began with his hot temper, anger, unforgiving, retaliatory, vengeful, complaining, bitter spirit. And he never would get right with God. It was a matter of pride to him. If you could have interviewed him, he would have told you, I am where I am because of the abundance of my hostility and the absence of my humility. May it not be so for us. Would you bow your heads, please? Thank you for your patience with me tonight as we covered a lot of verses and passages. So frequently we allow our temper, our anger, to pop up in our relationships, sometimes with those who know us best at home and elsewhere. Many times we just go through the motions of our Christian life finding all the things that we don't do and we kind of feel good about ourselves. But revival, dear friend, is when God's people are honest with themselves. I'm not preaching anymore. I'm just simply saying... We need to take care of things. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.